Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Mike Breuer who's running for Senate in Kentucky to replace Mitch McConnell. Mike Breuer, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's absolutely, uh, absolutely my pleasure to be with you here today, Edward. You're a farmer, you're an educator, you're a former small town newspaper editor, you're a former marine officer. Why did you... <sighs> decide to run for office against not just any senator, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Kentucky, you know, Mitch McConnell has represented Kentucky for the last 35 years. In fact, um, he and I entered federal service in the same year. Uh, I, I joined the Marines in 1984, and uh, um, Mitch McConnell went off to Washington for his first time in 1984. Uh, one of us is a multi, multi, multi millionaire, and one of us is a uh, asparagus farmer in Lincoln County, Kentucky. But I think that I made the uh, I think I made the best choice. But um, as a Kentuckian, um, it, we bear a particular responsibility for uh, sending this um, this selfish and and just craven uh, person back to uh, Washington. Um, Every six years, and so when I when I came to the realization that that Donald Trump is just a a symptom of the system, and that it's the Mitch McConnells of the world that keep this system going, um, I said, okay, it is my responsibility as a Kentuckian to to do something about this. And I, I looked at my resume, and as you mentioned, I'm a retired Marine officer. I'm married to a Marine, by the way. Um, I uh, educator and uh, and and a farmer. All those things carry an awful lot of water in Kentucky, and no one like that has ever run against Mitch McConnell. We've continued to run kind of ah, nice, um, middle-of-the-road, Republican-like kind of Democrats against him and got creamed every time. And when the when the, the realization hit me that, that I was packing the resume to, uh, you know, to take down Mitch McConnell, uh, my wife and I talked about it uh, quite extensively, and then we just said, that's it, we're doing this, because... As two officers sworn to protect and defend our Constitution, um, it's not something we take lightly. And so, um, and, th and there's absolute contempt for the rule of law, the uh, separation of uh, powers, checks and balances, all the things that uh, U.S. children are taught in their civics classes that are just being completely disregarded by, by Mitch McConnell. And so, um, we just said that this is it. This is the thing we're going to do. And there's about a year ago we made this decision, and we've been running hard ever since. What would you say to people out there in Kentucky, those voters who have supported Mitch McConnell because they want a Republican in the Senate rather than a Democrat? You're obviously running in the Democratic primary here. What would you say to them to convince them that you're not this idea of a Democrat that Mitch McConnell and those in the Republican Party are pushing, but you're someone who understands the needs of Kentuckians. You're just one of those voters. How are you going to convince them of that? Because that's presumably your biggest hurdle here. Oh, uh, definitely. And well, actually, there's, you know, uh, my biggest hurdle is uh, is really name recognition. 
And, um, you know, I, I don't have a national stature. I'm not in the news. You know, Mitch McConnell can get on anytime he wants. All he has to do is walk out of his office and start talking. Um, and so the challenge is, and, and, and Kentucky is a large state. It would probably take you eight or nine hours to drive from the northeast corner um, up against West Virginia and Pennsylvania down to the, the uh, southwest corner. Uh, up on the Mississippi River. It's, it is a very geographically large and diverse place. So the challenge for me, of course, is, is name recognition. But as far as messaging goes, um, you're absolutely right. It's, I am more like them. I am a, like literally dirt under nails farmer. Uh, when we are done talking today, I will go out and start picking our crops in this 40 degree weather for the uh, farmer's markets uh, that, that are still open in Kentucky despite the pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, the thing is, is that there's not anybody in Kentucky who doesn't know a teacher, a farmer or a retired veteran. And as I said earlier, it carries a lot of weight. Now, as far as the message, um, you know, we have got really we're at the bottom of every list. You do not want to be on the bottom of in Kentucky or the top, depending on your perspective, I guess. I mean, with the fifth worst poverty rate in the nation. Uh, double the number of uh, uh, Kentuckians are uh, working at the minimum wage than the national average. Uh, we're seventh in diabetes, one in con uh, cancer deaths. We're number one in child abuse. And shockingly, I found out we are number one in the nation in child homelessness, which is just hard. It's, it's just impossible to imagine. Uh, and so that's what you get after 35 years of, of Mitch McConnell. And now um, the things that I've been talking about, universal basic income, single-payer health care, which before the pandemic, people were like, oh, that's just kind of, you know, Mitch called them, Mitch McConnell called them uh, left-wing fantasies. All of a sudden, they're starting to look pretty good to people. Um, when, you, when you talk about uh, the idea of uh, a single-payer health care system, uh, where it's not tied to your employment, as and I don't know what percentage of your listeners are in the UK, but... In, in, the, in the U.S., most of our health care is actually tied to our employment. Last week alone, we put 6.6 .6 million people on the unemployment rolls, and we might as well call them the uninsured rolls in the face of the largest medical threat in the last 100 years in the United States. Some of the problems that Kentucky is facing there that you just mentioned are issues that are related to income inequality in the state. And you've claimed that, quote, Growing economic inequality is not just a problem from a fairness issue. It's a problem for the sustainability of our economy. That's something from your campaign website. In order to address that, you proposed repealing the 2017 tax bill that Mitch McConnell pushed through the Senate, costing the US $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years in lost tax revenue. What do you believe would be the benefit of that bill's repeal? How much of an economic impact do you think that would have on people in the state? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a question of, you know, who's actually paying. And, 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 and I, uh, I subscribe to the theory that, uh, that if you're going to, if you're going to create wealth, if you are going to spend the taxpayer's money and, and by cutting taxes on the, the corporations and the various wealthiest Americans, you literally, um, you know, you, it was a net loss to the republic. And so if we are going to spend money as a government, uh, it is much, much better spent at uh, the bottom. The, the, the middle class, the working poor and the poor spend money at a much higher velocity than, um, than the rich do. 
you know, money that is spent locally changes hands hands much quicker. It changes hands many more times. And, uh, you know, we were sold this bill of goods back in the 80s of trickle-down economics. And it was just uh, last week that our New York Times had an article saying, let's put Reaganomics to rest, finally. Or words to that effect was the, was the, the headline. Because this idea that giving money to corporations and the wealthy ultimately tri uh, trickles down to the you know the working class is just not true. We, we've got 40 years of data and it, it, it doesn't work. And let me give you an example. Uh, 2009, uh, we had an economic uh, crisis here, but you know, it was felt around the world. And uh, we bailed out the airline industry to the tune of $50 billion. They spent $45 billion of that buying back their own shares and driving up the, <laughs> driving up the price of those shares and consolidating power in their boards of directors. So the so the US taxpayers basically gifted $45 billion and whatever the exponential growth from that was in wealth to the various the very wealthiest people in the nation. And it doesn't make sense. And I will argue that every single day as a Kentuckian, as a as a farmer and someone who teaches in our public schools and sees, you know, the results of poverty um, every single day. And uh, so I think it is time, and, and this pandemic uh, draws into sharp contrast, uh, you know, the absolute needs. The only reason they're even discussing a universal basic income uh, for the duration of the emergency here, the pandemic, is to save their skins. Because those people, the, the poor, the working poor, the middle class of this country are invisible to people in Washington. And until it became a pandemic where people are literally dying, they didn't, they didn't care about them. And they had no care uh, to relieve them other than, you know, other than to take their tax money and use it to bail out their friends. You've stated that the U.S., beyond what's currently happening, quote, is undergoing one of the most extreme technological and economic revolutions in its history. As part of your plan to respond to that, to protect people in your state, you've backed calls for the universal basic income, something you were mentioning there. You know, how would that, as you said, quote, return the wealth of the U.S. back to Kentuckians and to all American people? Well, if you if you if you take a look at the uh, history of Kentucky and so there are eight Appalachian coal producing states, uh, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. Um, and, and so there's there's eight of us. And for 200 years, we've had this extractive economy where where coal companies, first timber companies and coal companies came in and basically stripped the land and left Kentuckians um, and all the adjoining um, Appalachian coal producing states holding the bag um, economically and environmentally. You know, there's a, uh, I mentioned to you earlier that I have a dual evening live stream at 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, you know, from uh, on different topics. And I had a lady on from Martin County, Kentucky, which is right up against the Virginia border. And they cannot drink the water that comes out of their taps. They cannot drink, uh, they cannot bathe with it. You wouldn't bathe your child in it. Uh, you cannot drink it. And uh, she's been running a one-woman campaign probably for the last uh, eight years to try to remedy this problem. And it, it all stems from a coal company that had a slurry pond that broke its, its walls and flooded into their creeks and, and, and their, their, their tributaries and ultimately into the groundwater. So to this day, so 20 years after this incident, um, you cannot drink the water. And this is, you know, this is the United States. OK, you know, this, that, that we have places here in, in my state that when you turn on the faucet, you should not touch it with your hands 
or drink it. And so, uh, so those are the kind of that, that's a social justice issue right there that, that we've allowed people to economically extract the resources of this land and then just leave people holding the bag. And that is wrong. Uh, but 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 economically too, it, it's it's not a foreign concept to the United States. Um, the idea that the the resources of the land are really collectively owned. You know, up in, in the state of Alaska, they have a sovereign wealth fund, and they started it in the fifties because of their farming in, uh, farming industries. And then when they began producing oil and gas, this money went into the sovereign wealth fund. And now, every single month, uh, if you are a resident of the state of Alaska, you get a check from this fund and it's a sizable check. And it is basically a universal basic income that it just acknowledges that as a resident of this state, you are a shareholder in these natural resources and the wealth of this land and uh, here's your check. And so it's not a giveaway, it's not welfare, it is what is your due as a joint holder of, of the resources of your land. And so that's so there's there's an economic aspect of it, and then there's a social aspect of it, and that's why I'm uh, all for universal basic income. While there are many people who clearly agree with the benefits of the universal basic income proposal, it has received some criticism, not least because it's believed that, according to calculations from the Commerce Department data, it would cost the federal government between two to four trillion dollars which would be more than 10% of last year's GDP. Now, you talked about the economic benefits of introducing a system such as universal basic income and people putting that money back into society. But there are those who look at it and use the traditional argument against proposals such as this by saying, how will you pay for it? So what would you say to those individuals to convince them that, they wouldn't have to be concerned by the financial cost of implementing a scheme such as this. Well, and to go back to your your, your original question, that, that this is a, a time of great change, and those calculations are made um, with the status quo in mind, that we do not do a we we not do a fundamental change in the way we look at our economy and the way we look at our society in the United States. Um, there are, you know, the idea of of funding this. Is uh, there, there are many revenue sources, and I will admit this: that in the beginning of it, you do need to literally create wealth. But, but just two weeks ago, our government wrote a check for two trillion dollars, trillion dollars, without even blinking, right? And so it can be done, and uh, it just depends on whether you've got the uh, you know the moral courage to to take that leap. Now, there are other streams of incomes that that you can tap. You know, we can get rid of. Uh, you know, we have this. Uh, thing in the United States, the Social Security. There's a cap. You stop paying Social Security tax at $120,000. And there's no good reason for that. You know, you blow, you take the cap off. And so, you know, when we're talking about 100, you know, we're talking about people will be contributing way more into our, into our, uh, our uh, Social Security funds. That is a, just another, that's one example of a stream of income that you get. There's no argument putting a cap at $120,000 on people paying in paying taxes for social security. There's none. And so you take that away and you generate one income stream. Um, we use a carbon tax and that kicks into the fund. 
And, and the thing is, though, you know, is, and then we, you know, we use we use uh, money to uh, capitalize infrastructure projects, putting people to work at prevailing wages or union wages. And the good thing about, like, say, a carbon tax and doing large infrastructure projects is, at the end of it, um, at the end of it, you've got uh, you've worked for, to improve the environment, you've gone to mitigate climate change, and you've got great infrastructure on on the far side. So there are plenty of streams. Uh, you know, we've got a uh, inheritance tax that is kind of ridiculous. You can get rid of that. Um, we the way we tax corporations is far different than the way we tax labor. I personally believe that that you know there's a um, a uh, classic example, I think Warren Buffett tells the story about, you know, this is a billionaire who pays less taxes than his secretary does. Okay, that is just a fundamentally unjust system. And so this opportunity, this moment in time, this pandemic uh, is the time to, to take a look at the way our tax basis works and uh, fundamentally change the way that we do business in the United States. And you can fund universal basic income if, we, if we're bold enough to make those changes now. A recent New Yorker article was titled How Mitch McConnell Became Trump's Enabler-in-Chief, which you tweeted out saying that McConnell has enabled Trump more than anyone. However, despite this, as the article itself states, McConnell repeatedly calls Trump nuts behind his back. Why is McConnell enabling Trump if he believes his actions are nuts? Well, it's because he doesn't care of the results. It's just, it's this incredibly transactional relationship. You know, I, I'm uh, I, I'm one of those people who believe who who respond well to transformational leaders. I think most people do, and uh, the fragility of a transactional relationship is again, this pandemic is showing is showing the cracks. But at the root of it is is that Mitch McConnell is getting what he wants. Uh, the president doesn't veto his bill. One of the things that uh, is the responsibility of the U.S. Senate is, of course, is approving judges. And uh, so I think they're on track this year to have uh, put 200 federal judges on the bench with lifetime appointments in the United States. And that is what Mitch McConnell sees as his legacy. You know, a year ago, he was here in Kentucky talking to a friendly group in, I think, Bowling Green, Kentucky. And he, he said, I am changing America forever. And when a, you put a 35, 40-year-old judge on the bench with a lifetime appointment, you're fundamentally changing America forever. And uh, in fact, at the height of the you know COVID panic last week, he said the agenda for the Senate for the rest of the year was going to be judges, judges, judges. So he, you know, he lets Donald Trump. He does not provide the check on the executive, which is another one of his responsibilities. He doesn't put a check on the, the, the White House, lets them do whatever they want, and he gets to pack the court uh, with uh, judges, which he sees as his legacy, and he and his friends are all getting rich. So they do not care about the future of the country, the future of the republic, or the Constitution, and that's why they're not putting a check on the president. And uh, so he doesn't he doesn't care that he's nuts. He, he, he's getting exactly what he wants. And this kind of transactional leadership uh, breaks under stress. And I'm sure you've seen the news where right now within the United States, we have the 50 states and the federal government all bidding against each other, this this kind of uh, federalist suicide pact um, to, uh, you know, to bid for uh, PPE and for masks and for ventilators and things like that. 
And uh, that is what they like in DC. They like people fighting against each other because it takes the attention off them and their malfeasance. One of Mitch McConnell's proudest achievements, which he's bragged about multiple times, was his impact on judges in America, specifically blocking Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. How much damage has McConnell done to America's political system, in your opinion, not just through the policies he supported, but the way that he's gone about it? Well, and, and of course, the rest of that particular story is that when asked if he would um, if he would appoint a judge in Donald Trump's last year, and uh, he laughed about it and said, yes, I will, you know? And so that's the rest of, you know, that is the rest of the story. And what it is, is, is the absolute open contempt for the rule of law and, and not just the rule of law, but just decency and fair play. Um, and that has left a, a lasting scar on our, on our political process here. Absolutely. And it's uh, the, the fact that he is so contemptive of his constituents and of the Constitution and his responsibility as Senate Majority Leader, that he would actually admit that he would jury, you know, that, that he'd be happy to uh, say that this isn't correct for one president, but it is correct for another to to appoint a Supreme Court justice in their last year. And so it is that abject contempt for the rule of law and uh, disregard for his fundamental responsibility to serve the serve the Constitution not himself or the president, that that kind of lays bare the very, very worst part of Mitch McConnellism. His impact on politics is evident in the current coronavirus outbreak that's hit America particularly hard out of all of the countries that have been affected, with the US now having the most number of confirmed coronavirus cases globally. In 2017, not only did Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell lead the charge to try and repeal the Affordable Care Act, he also repeatedly tried to defund a critical program at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which was directed at detecting and curbing the spread of infectious disease like the coronavirus. Do you believe that the Republican Party's actions have contributed to the current healthcare crisis in America. Undoubtedly, and they've cultivated this, um, this, this cult of anti-intellectualism, this, this contempt for experts. And, you know, the, the thing about Mitch McConnell is, is to under, to, to, you underestimate him at your own risk. Uh, he's no dummy. He knows exactly what he's doing. And, but this is red meat for the Trump crowd. Uh, contempt for science, contempt for knowledge, contempt for math, contempt for experts. And, uh, you know, I don't believe that Mitch McConnell um, believes any of that for a second, but it is red meat for the for the Trump voters. And so he's just along for the ride because he doesn't care where the ride is going. And that's that for me, that is the very, very root of it. So, yeah, um, you know, you asked earlier about, uh, you know, his relationship with Trump doesn't care, doesn't care where this ride is going, except that he knows that he's going to get more powerful and richer. And that is it. It is the most craven, self-serving. Uh, it's hard to imagine that the founders of our country who, you know, who wrote our founding documents 
actually imagine that someone so selfish and self-interested would actually rise to a position where single-handedly one man has become the single point of failure in American government, that he can stop literally anything from going forward by fiat. And uh, I, I think that uh, the founders of this nation are spinning at the cyclic rate in their graves as they see what's going on. Looking at an issue that's close to your heart is education, because in the winter months, when the weather's too bad to farm, you fill in as a substitute teacher. It gives you an insight into the education system in America. And despite the important role that they play in society, teachers in Kentucky are watching their pensions come under attack from Republicans. What do you believe needs to be done to support them? Well, you know, uh, their, their pensions need to be fully funded. You know, our, our, for example, like our postal service in the United States, they're required to fund uh, pensions out like 75 years. As one uh, uh, postal union boss told me, he said, we're funding pensions for postal carriers who are not yet born. And, and that's a, that's a fact. And uh, but here, in, you know, Kentucky, we have got this in across the United States. We have this patchwork of of uh, retirement programs for our teachers that vary wildly from state to state. Let me give you an example here in Kentucky. There I think there are 17 states where teachers do not pay into Social Security, uh, which ends up being the, you know, the, the backbone of most Americans retirement. And so since they do not pay into it, they are not eligible to collect it. But here's the crazy thing about it. If your spouse has paid into it, right? If your spouse has paid into it and predeceases you, you get about two thirds less if you're a teacher than if you were, for example, a stay at home parent. And it's inexplicable. It is inexplicable, this, this discrimination, and it is aimed specifically at teachers. And that kind of hostility to, you know, as I said, this anti-intellectualism, this hostility towards education and, and teachers really manifested itself in our last year's race here in Kentucky for governor, where the previous governor, a guy named, a uh, really contemptible person named Matt Bevin, made teachers his particular target. And I have to tell you, it was them that ran him out of office last November. It was just, I mean, in, in many in many small places in Kentucky, it's either the local hospital or the local school system is the number one employer. And so this guy, this Republican who had made teachers his particular target, inexplicably was was run out of office literally for his hostility to teachers. The issues in the education system aren't just related to teachers in Kentucky and the impacts that exist on their pensions. We see how there isn't the funding in a lot of classrooms and a lot of schools to ensure that the pupils who are supposed to be benefiting from the education that they're receiving, they're not getting the funding that allows them to have the education they need or the education they deserve. How do we ensure not just teachers are given the support they need, but students are given the funding in their schools that they need to get the education that is crucial to their future development. Well, it's you know, it's it's. I guess it's a question a question of public will. There's a uh, you know, I, as you mentioned, I, I substitute teach in, in our school systems, and um, 
the, the teachers, and, and I know you have an international audience, but it, it's probably hard to understand, but for them to imagine, I'm sure they can understand it, but it's hard to imagine that teachers spend money out of their own pockets buying school supplies for the classroom. I teach in, in one, uh, school, uh, one school nearby here where some lady in California every month every month sends boxes of school supplies. I, and, and I don't know what her tie to this small community was, but if it wasn't for them, uh, the teachers would be paying for pens, pencils, paper. And we're talking about, we're not talking about infrastructure like buildings. We're just talking about the, you know, the absolute rudiments of, of, of running a classroom, uh, paper, pencils, erasers, and things like that. And, uh, and, and so I guess the, the, the key is to that, solving that particular problem is, uh, is will. It's to have the will to say, this is what we value, this is important, and since we value it and it's important, we have to pay for it. Finally, to, to round out this interview, why should voters elect you as the next senator from Kentucky replacing Mitch McConnell? I don't have a, a any kind of long-term plan. I don't have a desire to... I have no other office that I want to pursue. I don't, frankly, I don't need another job. Um, I got one that I like. But if they elect me, they get somebody who's going to make every single decision is going to be based on the uh, welfare of the republic and the welfare of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, period. I want to get rid of Mitch McConnell. We need to blow open this logjam of legislation, bills that are important to the welfare of the people of the United States, get some progress in D.C., get some bipartisanship with someone who's got no vested interest. I have no, I take no money from super PACs. I don't take any dark money. I basically owe, I will owe nobody anything other than the voters of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And that's what they need right now. Mike Breuer. Thank you for joining me. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and it was it was fun to it was fun to meet you too. That was Mike Breuer, who's running for Senate in Kentucky to replace Mitch McConnell. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Mike for KY and at mikeforky.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a view online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye.